You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. This morning, those who've got Bibles or electronic Bibles, as most people seem to have, I can't get past having a paper Bible. I think that's the real one, the one that Jesus used. Um, but yes, open up your Bibles to John chapter 1 this morning. And before we start, let's pray. Father, as we open up our Bibles this morning, would you open our eyes to see the wonders that are in your word, to see the truth that is revealed in it. Would you open our eyes to see Jesus revealed in your word this morning? In his precious name, amen. So John chapter 1, the last couple of times I've preached, Started in verse 1, we'll just do a very quick recap. John wrote his gospel for the specific purpose that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. So he is very intentional in his writing that that we should know that Jesus Christ is God. So he starts in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John starts the first three verses by telling us that the word, who he later reveals as Jesus Christ, was pre-existent. He was always there before creation. He tells us that the word was co-existent. He was there with God, but he was separate from God. And that he is self-existent. He is himself God. And also that he is the creator of all things. Verses 4 and 5, John tells us, In him, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So he goes on to tell us that in the next two verses that Jesus Christ is life. He's the source of all life, physical and spiritual. He is light. He is the source of moral light and spiritual light and he is powerful to defeat darkness. So then John pushes on in verse 6 through to 13 we'll be looking at this morning. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not that light but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So our author John moves on from the uncreated one, the Word, Jesus Christ, to a mere man, a created one, also called John. Verses 6 and 7, and sorry, 6 through to 8, John says that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Hundreds of years before the Word was incarnated, before Jesus Christ became man, 
the prophets of God were telling the Jewish people about his future coming. So much of Jesus' life and his ministry was prophesied. There were something like 300 or more prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of the word, about the coming of Jesus Christ. And each one of those prophecies has been fulfilled in amazing detail. Many of the prophecies had a double fulfilment. A lot of the Old Testament prophets spoke about something that was happening in their own time, but it was also going to be something that was fulfilled, completed in the future. So there's a partial fulfilment in the time of Isaiah, for example, and a complete fulfilment in the time of Jesus Christ when he's incarnated. In some cases, a coming fulfilment as well when Jesus comes again. So some of the prophecies are things like born of a virgin in Isaiah. Out of Egypt I called my son in Hosea. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Psalms you recall Jesus crying that out on the cross. They refer specifically to Jesus Christ. But there are a couple of prophecies that that speak specifically about John the Baptist. Isaiah, about 700 years before the time of Christ, prophesied, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is in in Isaiah chapter 40, if you're taking notes. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. After centuries of God speaking to his people through the prophets, he fell silent about 400 years before Christ the prophet stopped speaking. The last prophet to speak was Malachi, which is the last book of our our Old Testament. Malachi echoed Isaiah and he said, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And very specifically, the very last words of our Old Testament were spoken through Malachi about John the Baptist. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The Jews had been anticipating this saviour for centuries and Malachi prophesied that their saviour, their messiah was finally coming but then God fell silent for 400 years the Jews were expecting him to come and overthrow their oppressors um, being the Babylonians and the Syrians and various others in the time of Christ it was the Romans that invaded their land and were oppressing them They were counting on a Messiah that was going to come and destroy the Romans and overthrow them and let them rule in their own right and rule as a king over them in their land. But God was silent for 400 years. All that hope and all that expectation suddenly vanished. 
There was nothing. There was no Elijah. There was no coming Lord. The one the Jews had been longing for for centuries still hadn't come. Have you ever noticed that God often doesn't work to our timelines? Finally, 400 years after Malachi, 700 years after Isaiah, Matthew writes in his Gospel, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptist had one of the most important tasks in history. He was called to announce the coming of the Saviour and not just the Saviour of the Jews, the Saviour of the world. John, as I'm sure you know, was an unusual man. He lived in the desert eating locusts and wild honey and wore a camel skin tunic with a leather belt around his waist. He was the uh, reincarnation, if I can use that term loosely, of Elijah the prophet. Elijah used to dress in a similar way with a leather belt around his waist. But Jesus said about John, Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater than John the Baptist, really? Are you serious, Jesus? Surely, what about Moses? I mean, Moses was almost worshipped by the Jews. Surely he was greater than John the Baptist. Maybe he meant there was no one more intelligent than John the Baptist. I doubt that's what he means, but maybe no one more charismatic than John the Baptist. And certainly John the Baptist was a charismatic preacher. The people were flocking out to hear him preach, to be told, who told you to flee the coming wrath? Repent, you vipers. And, and uh, Not exactly the way you would, uh, you would expect to get a congregation of people around you by telling them off and telling them to repent and telling them they're sinful and wicked. So he must have been a very charismatic preacher. There was no one more powerful. There's no record that I'm aware of that John ever performed a miracle. No one more intellectual, no one more spiritual, no one more influential maybe. I don't think that's what Jesus was referring to at all. John was the greatest man who ever lived because he had the greatest responsibility and the greatest privilege and duty of any man who had ever lived up to that time. He was announcing the arrival of the King, the Saviour, the Messiah, the one who had been written about in scripture right back in Genesis chapter 3 referred to this coming saviour, the seed of the woman. All through scripture you'll see this coming saviour referred to, sometimes in veiled prophecy, sometimes quite clearly. And now he was arriving and John the Baptist had the privilege and the responsibility of announcing that arrival. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. As exciting as John's message and ministry were, John was not the light. He was merely a witness to the coming of the light. He was a messenger, a herald proclaiming that the time has finally arrived. The Lord is here, John would say. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Prepare yourself for the coming king. The true light is about to be revealed. And John came to reveal him. He came to point people to him, not to himself. So also each one of us today has the same responsibility as John and the same privilege of revealing Christ to those around us, of revealing Christ to a world that doesn't yet know him and introducing people to your Saviour. John the Baptist shows us the true nature of Christian ministry. It applies to us no less today in the 21st century than it did to John in the 1st century and that it did to the disciples also in the 1st century. Our goal, our aim, our responsibility must always be to point people to Christ, not to ourselves, to Christ. We are not the light. Christ is the light. He is the one who is able to save. Proclaim him, testify to him, reveal him, preach him. It's our mission, it's our calling, it's our duty as Christians. Whether you're a preacher with a platform like I've got here at the moment or whether, more importantly, you're a factory worker, a tradesman, an office worker, a bus driver, a student, whether you're retired, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're unemployed, proclaim him, proclaim him always. We preachers are able to reach tens, hundreds, maybe thousands of people at a time. Some of the bigger churches, they preach to 20,000 people or more in one sitting. But we only do it on a Sunday morning. You all, we all, have opportunities to connect with millions collectively outside of the four walls of this room and proclaim him. Point people to Christ. The impact that we can have outside of this room is astronomically greater than I can have preaching to you this morning. And never forget we have nothing to offer of ourselves except Christ. We have no glory, we have no majesty. Christ has all the glory, he has all the majesty and he has all power to forgive sins. Point people to the true light. Point people to Christ. Verses 9, 10 and 11 speak to us of a real tragedy. He, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Verse 11 doesn't make it real clear in our English translations what exactly John is referring to when he says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The first part, he came to his own, is actually referring to his own creation. And the next part, of course, is his created people, his own uh, race, his own people that he came to. John is referring to two different things here. And he set up a stunning contrast for us. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You recall when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the people were crying out his praises and welcoming the coming king. And, uh, and the Pharisees said to Jesus, tell these people to shut up. 
tell them to stop crying out like that. And Jesus' response was, I tell you, if these were silent, the very rocks would cry out in praise. The Bible often personifies creation, seems to give creation human qualities, feelings and emotions. Psalm 96 says, Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Similarly, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The stunning contrast is just this. The creator of the world came to his created world and was received with joy by the world, by the rocks, by the trees, by the oceans. The creator of humanity came to his own created humanity and was rejected by them. One commentator has written about the Lord's first coming. Will not a a, a thrill of glad expectancy run through the world? Will not men eagerly cover up whatever may offend him and eagerly attempt with such scant materials as existed to make preparations for his worthy reception? For not only had all men been made in God's image so that they might have been expected to recognise Christ as the image of the Father, but one nation had been specially instructed in the knowledge of God and was proud of having his dwelling place in its midst. If other men were blind to the glory, the Jews at least might have been expected to welcome Christ when he came. Their temple and all that was done in it their law, their prophets, their institutions, their history, their daily life, all spoke to them of God and reminded them that God dwelt among them and would surely come to his own. Though all the world should shut its doors against Christ, surely the gates of the temple, his own house, would be thrown open to him. Tragically, as we know, the opposite happened. I find it a striking contrast to see the rejection that the Jews gave to their creator, the most important person in the universe, the most important person in human history, with the reception that celebrities receive today. You've all seen footage of Apple Corporation announcing their latest phone, a phone, handy but not exactly life-changing, one phone among thousands of similar phones on the market, I might say, and he would stand on the platform and receive rapturous applause when he announced the latest iPhone. He'd even receive adulation from people. He would be received as if he was the saviour of the world, all because his company produced a phone. And when that phone is finally available to the, to the public, People queue up for hours or even days outside the store to be the first among their friends to buy a phone. Not exactly life-changing. Does something seem wrong to you with that picture? Jesus came to his own and was rejected. A new phone comes on the market and we queue up for days to buy it. Maybe it shouldn't surprise us because in John chapter 5 Jesus said, 
you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So in the 21st century, someone comes in his own name promoting a product that will make him unbelievably wealthy and we nearly wet our pants with excitement at his coming. The creator of the world came to humanity, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They ignored him, they despised him, they rejected him, they murdered him. If we didn't know our own sinfulness, we'd be tempted to condemn them for rejecting him. But I'd suggest if he were to come, put off his coming until today, we would do exactly the same. We would reject him too because we were, by nature, haters of God, enemies of God. We are, by nature, strangers and aliens. We are, by nature, rebellious, wicked, willfully blind and dead in our transgressions and sins. Our only hope is that he, the Word, the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, would extend mercy to us, change our hearts so that we would no longer reject him, that he would change our hearts, that we would finally do what we were created to do in the first place, to receive him, to believe in him and to worship him. John 1 verse 12 To all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What a privilege, what an honour to become a child of God. Not just the opportunity to become a child of God, not just the possibility of becoming a child of God, but the right, the authority, the privilege to become a child of God without hindrance and without barrier. This right and this privilege has its foundation in two great works done by God. First one is we now have legal authority because we have been justified by the blood of Christ and our faith in him. We also have familial authority. We have right as family based on our adoption by God. So we have the two great barriers, two great hindrances to becoming child of God removed by God on our behalf. Can I suggest at this point that our salvation is not just a ticket to heaven or a fire insurance policy. Its purpose is to make us family. It's why Christians consider other believers to be brothers and sisters. It's why we can all cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father, together. We are all part of the one family. I know there's a multitude of reasons why people get hurt by churches and choose not to go, but it breaks my heart that that happens. It breaks my heart that people get hurt by churches and it breaks my heart that people abandon churches. For all its faults and failures, the church is God's idea, not man's. And if it's God's idea, that should be enough for us. 
I don't know if we'll ever fully grasp what a miracle it is to become a child of God. We will certainly never properly appreciate it if we don't understand a basic truth about ourselves, each and every one of us. Whether you lived a BC life of debauchery and rebellion, as some of us did, or whether you grew up in a Christian home and can never really point to a time when you made that decision for Christ, you sort of always seem to believe in Christ. There's one foundational truth that that describes both you and I. There was a time when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and I was dead in my trespasses and sins. As Paul goes on to say, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the gospel. This is good news. This is the greatest news, that we should live in darkness, that we should be dead, that we should be children of wrath, that we should be deserving only of rejection by God and punishment for our sins, but God, but God. If you've become a child of God, it is because God has done the necessary work in your heart. He's changed you from the inside. He's granted you faith and repentance. He has made you alive. He's given you the right, the authority to become a child of God. For as John has just told us, you have been born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but you have been born of God. John will tell us a bit more about this new birth process when we get to John chapter 3. And he has his conversation with Nicodemus. For now, just take note that it's not your work and it's not your will. It's not your flesh that caused you to be born again. It's not a result of your ancestry. It's a work of God done for you because of his great mercy and his great love. If you've never experienced that, if you've never become a child of God, now is the time to do it. Call out to him, put your trust in him. God grants the right to become a child of God to all who would believe, no exception. Call out to him for his faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Make no mistake about it. It is God's work to change your heart, to regenerate you, to cause you to be born of God. But it is your responsibility to believe. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not everyone is a child of God in spite of what many people, Christian and non-Christian, like to believe. The only ones who are children of God are those who believed in his name. We see over and over again as we work our way through John's Gospel the claims about the sovereign power of God to change people's hearts and the right of God to choose whoever he wants for salvation, but we see it side by side with our responsibility to believe and to receive him. 
God is sovereign and just in choosing some for salvation and passing over others. And we all, all of humanity, every one of us, are responsible for our decision to believe in him or to reject him. That's the teaching of the Bible, even if it's hard for us to get our heads around. If you've never responded to that call, do it now. If you're already a Christian, remember where you came from. Remember what he has delivered you from and give him thanks and examine yourselves. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. For when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are called to reflect the light of Christ, the true light. We are called to be a witness to that light. We can't be a witness. We cannot reflect the light of Christ if we are willfully taking part in the works of darkness. Examine yourselves. Are you walking in the light? Are you reflecting Christ? Are you reflecting the true light? When others look at you, do they see Christ? If they don't, then it's maybe time to step out of the darkness and into the light. It may be time to repent and clean up your act. But if they do see Christ in you, when they look at you, rejoice. For you're bearing witness to him. You're pointing to him just as John the Baptist did, the greatest man who ever lived. And yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.